Sabah Yasmin, Sabah al Khair from Bethlehem. Today we're we're honored with with a much loved uh, writer, chef, Anisa Hello. Anisa, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm one of the first fans of your books, I think, and you've marked me a lot as a woman chef who's been extremely successful, who's written fantastic books um, from the from the Arab world, and at a time where where it was really a challenge to have Arab chefs anywhere, and also to have an Arab woman chef was just fantastic. Um, but tell how did it start? Because I I love the story of how you started cooking. Can you share it with our our, our auditors? <laughs> well, um, I was totally against cooking when I was very young because I wanted to be a sort of um, feminist and liberated and not at all domesticated. So I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have children. I didn't want to look after you know, be a housewife, look after people, etc. And I left Lebanon to live on my own in London. Well, actually with a guy. And the first thing I said to him was, don't expect me to sew your buttons and don't expect me to cook for you. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't seem to mind and it was fine. And then, you know, I didn't actually cook once in my life. I cooked before I was 21. And before that, I cooked when I was 16 for a midnight feast with my sisters. And they made a cake and I made lubiebzit. <laughs> and in fact, I kept a little bit for my mother to taste it to tell me whether I had done it right or not. Because my mother is an amazing cook and her mother too. And she liked it and said, yeah, it was great. But anyway, after that, I never cooked. So I arrived in London, we went out. London was a culinary desert. There was no good food to be had, but that didn't convince me to cook anyway. So we'd go out or go to friends or whatever. And one day, probably a year into my life in London, my my lover, the man I was living with, came back with a very glamorous friend of his from New York or from America and asked me what was for dinner. And I said, well, open the fridge and look at what's in the fridge and then you can have whatever you want which wasn't very nice nor was it very hospitable but anyway she opened the fridge and cooked whatever she cooked I don't remember but I remember how impressed he was and then my feminist ideas kind of flew out of the window and I thought well maybe I should start cooking but I never cooked on a daily basis and I still don't And I decided to cook a dinner party for 30 people, a Lebanese dinner party, Mm. having never cooked more Mm. than two (laughs) years And in London in 1976, at the height of the Civil War, when I couldn't call my mother and when I really couldn't get much, many ingredients. I mean, now you can find whatever you want. But in those days, um, it wasn't that easy. So I kind of scoured the town to get burhul, parsley, you know, uh, tahini and, you know, whatever ingredients, olive oil, because even then, we, did, you know, there were, olive oil was not so easily available. Mm-hmm. And not being able to talk to my mother, I thought, well, I could try cooking from memory because I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. In fact, I was her kitchen best. So I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her, with my grandmother, with my aunt in Syria, seeing everything being made at home. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll remember what she did, and I'll do it. 
I, to tell you the truth, I have no idea whether my food was good or not, but I managed to produce, you know, kebab, tabbouleh, hummus, whatever, for a group of foreigners, you know, 30 friends from all over Europe, America. Did they Everybody enjoy it? I was impressed. I was particularly impressed with myself because I was able to do it and it wasn't a disaster. But it wasn't, I don't know whether it was good or not. It's too long. It's hmm. too long ago. But they enjoyed it. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. Everybody exactly. thought it was great. You know, the table was like in Lebanon. You know, plenty of food, beautiful, vibrant colors, and um, I didn't burn anything. I didn't mess up anything. You know, and then I decided after that, I decided that I would cook occasionally for my friends. But in those days, I was much more interested in French, Spanish, all kinds of Western cooking more than my own cooking. It wasn't until I lived in Paris, like 10 years later, when I decided to do a dinner party for a friend of mine who was getting married. And I thought, well, maybe Lebanese would be more interesting for them. And I cooked a Lebanese dinner party for them. And it occurred to me that all my friends were much more interested in my Lebanese cooking than my Western cooking. <laughs> so I started cooking more Lebanese then. But still, occasionally, not thinking about it more than just for fun. But I loved food. I loved markets. I loved restaurants. I mean, I was a real foodie before the term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I kept that up until the Gulf War. You know, in those days, I was an art consultant. I had nothing to do with food professionally. Mm -hmm. But the, with the Gulf War, my work as an art consultant sort of dried up because I was working with Kuwaitis. And I was getting bored anyway, and I had always wanted to write. So I decided to write a book about collecting because I was also a collector, but with limited means. And I wanted to write about people like me. And I got myself a literary agent who introduced me to a Lebanese friend. And then they started talking about cookbooks. And, you know... Like this, off-the-cuff remark, I said, well, why don't I write a cookbook, a Lebanese cookbook, for all those people who left Lebanon, didn't have the chance that I had. And at the same time, I would write my mother's recipes, which were fabulous. But I, I knew nothing about writing cookbooks. Not only that, but I had no respect for cookbooks anyway, <laughs> apart from them being manuals that I used occasionally. And that's how it came about. So you went from being a young rebel refusing and associating cooking with, with, with a status of, of woman that, that is very much a domesticated woman at home who has to cook, to actually somebody enjoying cooking and then taking it all the way through to writing about recipes. But, but what's also interesting is the shift you described from going from Western cuisine to your own cuisine. Yeah. And and that's something we've seen a lot happen and we're seeing it today going through a whole re-questioning in the Middle East of the the seduction of a, of the, the the foreign of al gharib to the actual pride of our cuisines and the diversity of our cuisines. And and you've really in in your in your cookbooks um you you really You've even extended Shwayil definition of the Middle East. You've you've gone as far as Persia. You've you've really got gotten like your finger on that a lot of commonalities and, and differences we have. Um, 
So, so is this pride? Has it has it been something that has been a catalyst for you to to write these books? Is, have you any? You've gone back to being proud of your own cuisine and wanting to share it with people. Well, I think what was very interesting for me, because before I started writing about food, I, I considered food cooking and eating as a hedonist occupation or pursuit. But once I started researching my first book, which was on Lebanese cuisine, even though I had my mother's recipes, I wanted to put them in a social and historical context. So And, you know, coming from a cultural RT background, it was quite natural for me to do that. Um, I researched a lot the history of the country, of Lebanon, the cuisine, the influences and all this. And then I realized that basically food is culture. It's a lot more than just eating and, you know, getting together and enjoying and, and shopping and whatever. So so my my pursuit then became you know, on different levels. So first, preserving traditional recipes the way I did with my mother's recipes, mm -hmm. which was amazing because, like, I sometimes joke, kind of a sinister joke with my sister, that once my mother is gone, and I hope not for a long time That's yet, right. that I would replace her as the fabulous cook in the family because I have all her secrets. Um, Anissa, so, let, let me interrupt you there. Um, my late grandmother was a fabulous cook. I learned how to cook with her. We thought she'd always be there. And one of the things I regret the most is I never wrote down her recipes. But I can tell you, I, 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 I feel proud of the cooking I do, but I can't replace her. So I doubt you, you'll ever replace your mother's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that I do sometimes, not with all the dishes, but like... These dishes, I have them down to a T, exactly like my mother's. Others not. And I'm being immodest here, but actually I, I'm not, not wrongly so. But what is interesting is that I made my mother write her recipes. Mm. And of course, she wrote them in Arabic. I mean, I can read and write in Arabic. And, um, but she wrote them in a most extraordinary way. Like she would say, oh, take him a kemshe of this, you know, a handful of this, a coffee cup of that. And then always she finished her recipes, all of them, 200 or 250 of them. Uh, I didn't even know what yandush meant in those days. And I said, what do you mean? She says, cook until it's done. And I said, mama, please, you know, cook until it's done half an hour, an hour, two hours, you know. Somebody who doesn't know how to cook cannot be uh, cannot be told cook until it's done. They need proper instructions. So throughout the, the making of that book, we cooked together. We fought a lot because I was like always arguing with her about these kind of very vague instructions. But I learned more than me writing her recipes because there was a lot of give and take. And also, I don't know if I kept them. I hope I kept all her papers and all her recipes in Arabic. Probably I got rid of them. Um, but it was, it was a very interesting exercise that set me on the road of becoming a sort of a chronicler of, you know, traditional Middle Eastern to start with. I mean, Middle Eastern, Lebanese. I wanted to write a book about Syrian food, but in those days, nobody was interested Um, and then expanding because I, it's beca it became my profession. And you've done 
wonderfully in in sharing these stories, these recipes, the history and and the depth of of how far our cuisines go. But Anissa, your what is your favorite Lebanese recipe? Like, what is something you would cook and be very, very proud of? Is it the lubia bezet you cooked when you were 16? No, that's a very basic dish that I love and cook sometimes, not very often. But no, I think what makes me very proud is making now making Lebanese Arabic ice creams. But although I would not, I mean, I would not kind of venture into making mashe that much or ramme, you know, the stuffed intestines and and mm. um, and stomach, you know, which I called like culinary haute couture because you have to sew the tribe <laughs> and make them into like beautiful parcels. Um, yeah, the complicated dishes are the dishes that make me proud and... And I enjoy spending time in the kitchen, sort of perfecting recipes and being very precise and doing a proper mise en place and, you know, getting it all right. Yeah. Um, I'm not at all a kind of um, haphazard cook or a sort of put everything together and, you know, make it happen. I like, I like sort of, I consider cooking a sort of, if not art, a proper craft. A precise craft, a precise craft. Now you're, you're you're in Sicily and and you've moved to Sicily from London. Are you getting closer to the Middle East? Would the next step be you moving to Beirut or to Bethlehem? No, never. <laughs> no, I've never. I mean, I left Beirut in '73, which is now 47 years ago. I did toy with the idea of going to Syria. I wanted to buy a beautiful um, palace in Aleppo and restore it and turn it into a cooking school. But no, I mean, of course, Syria is gone now and, and uh, it would be a very long time. I don't, I like the Middle East. I mean, I like where I come from. I'm half Lebanese, half Syrian. But first of all, it's, it's still very sexist. So for somebody like me living there, would not be uh, not that people are not sexist in the re- I mean in other parts of the world. I mean sexism is still very present um, practically everywhere. Maybe not in Scandinavian countries, but um, you know the the religious aspect, the sort of fanaticism, the sexism, the the political problems. It's just there's too much going on in the in in uh, Lebanon and now Syria is sort of impossible for me to even consider going back and here at Sicily um, it's almost like being in Lebanon or in Syria the weather is beautiful the produce is more or less the same <laughs> except that if I want to do to get parsley for my tabbouleh they kind of look at me in a very strange way because nobody uses that much parsley here <laughs> or even mint out of season for that matter they don't practically don't use anything out of season this middle east of of that, that has issues with sexism that has issues with religious conservatism and, and extremism is also seeing some women chefs that are coming out and that are and if we look at, at kitchens, you know, in Europe it was a few years ago that it, it happened, um, where finally that male-dominated kitchen started opening up. And do, do you have any advice for, for the young 
women in, in Beirut and Bethlehem and Jerusalem and in, in, in Damascus in Amman who are becoming cooks or who are young cooks and are working in the kitchens? Do you have anything? Well, I mean, it's a tough environment. I have never personally wanted to work in a, in a kitchen, in a restaurant kitchen, because I felt it was too hard work. But I think it's, a, I think you're right. There are many more. In fact, in Lebanon, the women chefs, the young women chefs are probably more interesting, you know, than, than or just as interesting as the, as the young male chefs. Um, for me, my advice would be that, you know, they should really think hard before they launch into a sort of chef career because it's it's a very, very tough career. But if they are passionate and they want to do it, that they should do it and, you know, stick to their guns, not, not be intimidated. Because in any case, when they start, they're going to be, you know, low down the ladder and probably abused or sort of exploited slightly or maybe not treated so well. But, you know stick to you know stick to what they want to do and stand their ground and and feel proud of what they're achieving and also not be swayed away from their own cuisine so it's very interesting when i talk to young people across the arab world most of them are not interested in cooking and don't think about cooking until they get married but you know like with your great grandmother or with your grandmother you lose the recipes if you don't learn them Yep. You know, if if the old ladies, I mean, they're the best cooks in our part of the world on the whole. I mean, apart from you, Fadi. <laughs> 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 um, you know that they should they should pay attention to to the great talents in the home and 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 try and preserve these recipes for them and for the future for the next generations. You know, when when you you were talking earlier about the dinner party where you couldn't call your mother. It just reminds me, I actually call my mother every morning with, Mama, how, how do we do this? And sometimes she laughs and she says, come on, you're a chef. You're, you're running quite a successful restaurant. You know, well, why are you asking me? And I'm like, yeah, but you always have that little trick that, that I don't have and, and that little thing that, that's an extra. And, and so I, I, I am fascinated by the transmission of our heritage, culinary heritage, not only through through the, the the recipes, but also a lot through the hand gestures, the 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 movements. Uh, so the, the transmission has really happened through women in in our culture for the recipes. But we may have for a long time not given in our culture the right space for that glory. And and the, you know you you are the guardians of our heritage. And we need to to be always grateful to to you. So Anissa, what you're doing is fantastic, and and what other women, young women chefs are starting to do, and your advice is is, is great. To, you know, they have to preserve this. Uh, we all have to, but they have to because they're more talented, I think, than us. And they're they, they but we just need to connect them. I I I remember being in in Jordan and doing a pop-up and I invited some students to, to come along and cook with me and, and they all came in, they had all done their stage in fantastic restaurants across the world and I said, okay, we're going to the downtown market and they all looked at me bizarrely and said, well, what do you mean we're going to the downtown market? We order our vegetables and fruits and I said, no, no, we, I, I, that's not how I work. We go to the market, we meet the farmers, we buy the products, 
We go to the butcher and we don't go to a butcher who sells pre-packed meat. We go to a butcher who actually carves the, the meat and, and we work with him to carve it. And then I realized there was a lot of products they didn't know anymore. Things like akub. Things oh, like, yeah, which is the season now, actually. Of course. Do, do you, the Italians cook akub, right? It's cardones, I think. Uh, no, cardoons are different from akub. In fact, I think it exists in Italy because when I bought my land here, I the man who I bought my land from, we met on the land after I became the owner, and then he picked this you know, thistle that looked like akub, and he peeled it and gave it, gave me a taste. And it was amazing, but I, I don't recognize it. Uh, so, I mean, I don't, now, I, I, if I go up to my land now, I'll probably find, if I knew what to look for, I would probably find it. But it, he picked it much younger than the akub that we get, you know, in Lebanon or Jordan or Palestine or Syria. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I didn't know about Akub until about 10 years ago. Oh. It, because I think in, in Lebanon, it's very regional, right? I, I would... Yeah, it's very seasonal. It's wild. People go and pick it in the wild. I mean, I knew about this whole, they call it slee. So they go in the spring and they pick all the greens, all the white greens and everything. I knew about the tradition. But for some reason, my mother maybe because we didn't live in the mountains and my grandmother had left also Rishmaya long ago. Uh, we never had it at home. And it wasn't until, I can't remember how long ago, but either it was at a friend or in Su'atayib somewhere um, that I found out about it. And, and then I tasted it. And last year, a friend of mine sent me a huge uh, bag And I made it bil-laban, laban immu, and I added uh, the akub, and then I did, um, you know, fritters, and it was amazing. Mm. But it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. <laughs> but but like a lot of our our foraged um, produce, they, they are hard work. I mean, this link with the land we have in in, in our region um, is 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 quite time-consuming and it's slow cookings and it's a lot of preparation and I think it's it's a moment of, of mystical joy at a, at a certain moment. I, I'm going to get you onto a, a bit of a controversial subject. <laughs> cultural appropriation, culinary cultural appropriation. How do you feel when you see people cooking our cuisine and not recognizing its origin? Well, I I get angry. And, I mean, I get uh, annoyed, basically. Also, what I hate, I, I, I get annoyed, but I hate more the generic terms that have become uh, terms for anything. Like, so hummus has become a term for a dip. It's oh. no longer hummus. It's anything that is creamy. And it, it, if it has chickpeas and tahini, May, you know, maybe it has tahini all, but you know, you have chocolate hummus in the supermarket or oh, tabbouleh now can be any kind of tabbouleh or fatouche or falafel. That I dislike intensely because also part of the cultural thing is that you lose the whole point about preserving culinary heritage and lore is being able to go back to the source. I don't mind innovation at all. I think it's great. I love kind of modern, young modern chefs. Um, doing, you know, playing with Middle Eastern cuisine or any other cuisine and doing their own thing. But I do think it's very important 
not to corrupt dishes and and you know transform a name into a generic term. The, I mean, the name of a dish into a generic term. Hummus, you 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 know that is something I have been battling for for a while now. The word in Arabic mtabal means mm. you've added a tatbira, which is the tatbira is the, the the collection of spices and then and oil that you add on something. Mm-hmm. And, and I keep telling people who try to insist, oh, there's a pumpkin hummus. I'm like, no, no, you, I'm it's fine. Yeah, I'm fine if you right. call it a pumpkin mtabal, if it does have tahina and, and a collection of spices. But hummus is chickpeas. Like the word hummus, and that's something I keep trying to repeat to people. In Arabic, hummus is chickpeas. It's not the look of a dippy, creamy thing. Um, but it's, it's, it's sad to see that Pre-packed hummus and and uh, and and you know, as Palestinians, we really get upset when we see Israeli chefs cooking our cuisine and not not saying it's Palestinian. I yeah, I mean, yeah. I I have no problem. You know, I, I mean, we're not. I'm not being sectarian about it. I have no problem having a, a chef from from Tokyo cooking Palestinian food, but just like when you use a truffle from Alba, you say it's from Alba, and if mm-hmm. if it's from the Piedmont, it's from the Piedmont, or in France from the Perigord, just say it's Palestinian. It's a bit like frika, you know. All of a sudden, you have all these uh, Israeli chefs in London cooking frika and not saying it's Palestinian. Well, no, like, no, it is Palestinian. I mean, it's also Lebanese, but their their contact with it is Palestinian. Well, the thing is, like, take that. It's it's all to do with marketing, basically. So, Maghrabi, uh, or Hamza in, in North Africa, has become Israeli couscous, mm-hmm. which, and I, and I keep saying to people, it's not Israeli couscous. It's Maghrabi, or Hamza, if it's the North African version. And so, but it's it's marketing. So they've marketed it as as Israeli couscous, and it's just stuck. And you cannot get people off it. Eventually, they will because there is a return to to knowing about the origins of dishes or cuisines or whatever. People are much more interested now. In I mean, national is a bit of a strong term, but you know, let's say regional cuisines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, like tabbouleh for 20 years, more than 20 years, was a burghul salad in the West, mm. more than a parsley and tomato mm. salad. Mm. And finally, I mean, my Lebanese cookbook came out in 94. So that's 26 years ago. It took about 20 years for people to start making tabbouleh the right way. And even then, most of the pictures in the kind of Western cookbooks of tabbouleh, you will find that they're much more burghul heavy than parsley heavy or tomato heavy if you want to use this description so eventually people will get to recognizing i mean now that now is the time for palestinian cuisine there are lots of books coming out on palestinian cuisine people are talking about palestinian cuisine more than israeli or alongside israeli cuisine but the appropriation is basically wrong because it muddies the waters for future generations and you lose the the historical thread of the cuisine of the dishes and that's what i don't like apart from apart from the political aspect and the moral aspect of course i mean if we look at lebanese cuisine and and 20 years ago when 
Lebanese cuisine in the West was seen only as the as what is restaurant cuisine, El Mazda. You know, the, the older Lebanese restaurants in, in Paris and London were offering the, the mezzas, and then they some of them would offer a dish a day. And I, I would I when I lived in Paris, I would always be fascinated by the fact that when they offered the, the regular menu that had mezzas and, and, and grilled meats basically, um the restaurants would very often be a mixture of local French and and a few Middle Eastern guests. But then on Sunday, for example, they'd have a tabkha, uh, a cooked mm. stew, and then the restaurant would only be full of Lebanese and then Palestinian and Syrian guests. Because that's where you, you look a bit for home identity. And I mean, think, for me, something like mulukhiya is, is a dish that, that is... I mean, I have this memory of a place in Paris, Al-Ajami, where on Sunday they do mulukhiya and the place would be fully packed with the Lebanese of Paris. Um, mm. But you'd see a few French people looking at us bizarre. You're like, what is this gooey <laughs> stew you're eating? Like, it, it looks like snot. So uh, that has changed a lot. Do, do you think today is really a chance for people to, to relook at their more homely dishes? And I mean, for chefs, do you think it's also the time to look at what our n- n- normal homely cuisine is and and delve more into that? I think it would be great. I mean, the thing about the Middle East in general, I mean, Lebanon, Syria, is that the great cooks of the home dishes like mehshe, mluhiye, kibbe not the kibbe ras, but, you know, kibbe bilaban. Most of these dishes are much better at home than in the restaurant. Um, mainly because they're made into in smaller quantities. The, the home cook, the woman of the house, is going to spend more time sort of taking care, I mean, being more precise, whatever. You know, it's not, it's not a kind of mass production um, exercise. Whereas with the mise, it's, it's like, anyway, mise has always been a restaurant experience, even, you know, in Lebanon, it's always been when when I was a kid in Lebanon, my father would take us to Zahle to have meze. We never had meze at home, but my mother's cooking was all about you know the home cooked dishes. Now, what is interesting is is kind of elevating these home dishes, home cooked dishes, into very elegant dishes, and then that's where the restaurant chef comes in. Is that without kind of corrupting them as such, you're kind of modernizing them, making them prettier, um, more elegant, less now. But, you know, rustic, where, you know, less you, you put, like at home, you have a table and, yeah. you know, the, the, the housewife will put all the food on the table. It looks gorgeous, but it's not particularly very pretty mm-hmm. um, or, you know, elegantly presented. Mm-hmm. Because of the abundance and just kind of casual um, setting, let's say. Whereas if you turn, if you if you make these dishes in a restaurant setting and present them in a restaurant setting, then you can do something very interesting with them. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more chefs are going back to their roots and kind of working with the local ingredients and either becoming, you know, like arty and inventing dishes with with those local ingredients or perfecting the sort of home-cooked dishes. 
you know, both ways of cooking have their merit. Anissa, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank um, you, Fadi. I have one last question. What next mm-hmm. for Anissa Halou? Is there a book in preparation? <laughs> no, I am actually on, still on a sabbatical two years after my food of the Islamic world has come out. But as soon as I move into my new flat, I think I'll start working seriously again. That'll be fantastic. We, we can't wait. <laughs> Thank you, Anissa. Have a great day. Thank you, Fadi. You too. It's it was lovely talking to you. Thank you.